Great to see everybody today. I also want to uh, thank the guys from Everyday Sunday. They're going to have a little uh, booth, a canopy situation right outside the doors. I want to stop by and see them. Uh, I know from uh, working with my son, who does a lot of concert stuff, there's a lot of late nights, a lot of late nights. And uh, those guys got in really late last night and got up very early this morning. That combination doesn't work well together uh, too often. You, some of you might know that. But uh, I really appreciate them coming out, and they're just an awesome group of guys, so I encourage you to see them on your way out. All right, we're going to talk about how to become a person of powerful influence today. In all of my many, many years, uh, I have never had somebody come to me and say, Hey, John, could you, could you pray with me about something? I just have a deep desire in my heart for mediocrity. I, I really want to lead a mediocre life. I, I desire, I have this deep longing inside of me. My heart is crying out to live a life of insignificance. Would you pray with me about living an insignificant? I've never had somebody do that. And here's, here's what I think. I think the reason why is, is because every single one of us desire to be somebody great, you know, to, to, to do some, something great. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be big, right? There's a difference between something big and something great. But we want our lives to count. We want it to be significant to have meaning. And we can't get caught up in the difference between something big and something great. Like Bin Laden did something big, but he didn't do something great. Hitler did something really, really big, but he didn't do something great. Jesus Christ did something that was both big and great. The Apostle Paul, which we've been studying, he he did things that were both big and great. Like historians, outside of church history, historians will tell you that Paul made a huge impact upon this world and upon history. Those are both it was both big and great. And there's other people who've done similar things. But I don't want you to think for a second that greatness is wrapped up in doing something big. I, I know a guy, and he's got, like, he's married guy. He's been married for a while. He's got a long string of men in his family, like fathers and grandfathers and uncles, uh, that, that adultery, a lot of it. And so after he'd been married a few years and, you know, all this stuff comes out about all the family, you know, people came to us and said, well, you know, your time's coming. You do the same thing. And what he said was, you know what, it's come this far and it'll go no farther. Now, here's the thing. Nobody's ever, it's not big. I mean, it's big to his wife, but it's not big in the fact that a lot of people are going to know about that, right? But it's really great for his wife and for his kids if he's able to say it's come this far and no farther. You, you follow what I'm saying? There's a difference between greatness and bigness. So I don't want you to get caught up. And here's the thing. What we're going to talk about this morning, every single one of us can achieve. There's not a, the, the door for greatness in the eyes of God stands wide open for every single person. You don't have to be uber talented. You don't have to be like every day Sunday and have this awesome talent to sing or something like that. Or you don't have to be all, off the charts with some talent or some kind of leadership skill or gift or be brilliant. This greatness we're going to talk about this morning, the door stands open. That's the cool thing for every single one of us to walk through. It's two things that make up being a person of powerful influence. And I believe deep inside of all of us, we desire that in the eyes of God. Every single one of us, no matter where we are, what we've done in life, it's in there. It's inside of us. So I want to read for you these verses. I'm going to start in Acts 20, and we're going to kind of skip around because Paul is making this 
He's making this journey. It's almost a pilgrimage. And he's headed to Jerusalem. It took him months and months and months. And he goes from city to city to city. And some very interesting things happen as he makes his way there. So look what it says. And now, compelled by the Spirit, Paul's speaking, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know this, that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing. Nothing, if only I may finish the race and complete the task. The Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. After we had been there, see, we're skipping ahead. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet Agabus, he's now in the city of Caesarea. He's visited probably 10 cities. And this is the final stop for Jerusalem. Agabus came down from Judea, coming over to us. He took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem, this is a very important point, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, all to this point, Luke has been writing this from the standpoint of everybody's pleading Paul not to go to it, but now he jumps in on the act too. He jumps right into the pool and says, I got in on the act too. I'm saying, please don't go. Danger's ahead of you. Paul says, I'm not listening to this. So he says, we heard this. We pleaded. The people there, don't go to Jerusalem. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. I want to take just a brief time out before we get into becoming this person of powerful influence. I did not include verse number 15 here. And I want to tell you what verse 15 says. Verse 15 talks about a guy by the name of Manason. M-N-A-S-O-N. It's kind of a different name. You've got to go like to say it. His name is Manason. Why does Luke tell us about it? Why does the Bible tell us about this guy Manason? This guy hosted the meeting in his home. And what's very interesting about the book of Acts and Luke writing it is he keeps telling us about people who would host a church or a party or a meal or something. They would just gather people to be in their home. And it, he names them. We have all these names of these people throughout the book, this history book of the church, who were doing this. And the reason why, I think, is Paul is letting us know that these people with the gift for hospitality, in his opinion, were making a massive impact upon church history. It's huge. So I'm going to ask you a question. In a second, I'm going to ask some of you to raise your hand. All right? So don't raise your hand until I say it. Some of you have the gift of hospitality. Some of you here this morning, you know what it's like. You always are like, you just don't go to parties. You're, in, you're inviting everybody to come to the party that you're hosting. Either come into your house or your apartment or something like that or a park somewhere because you're right in the middle of every party and every meal and you're organizing it. You're the party animal. You just love people and people love to be around you and just gathering, gathering. You have this gift of hospitality. In a second, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand because it's very important. And so have the courage and be loud and proud. Just put your hand up. Now, some of you are, are going to be shy and, and you're not going to raise your hand. But uh, there might be somebody sitting next to you, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, every party, that person is right in the middle of it. And I need you to point them out, okay? This is really important. So if you have the gift of hospitality or you're sitting next to the person that has that gift and they're the party animal, always gather their party, could you throw your hand up or give a point? Who's here? Who's there? Okay. All right. Any pointers? Is anybody not their hand up and you need to point them out? Okay. So all the part. Oh, okay. All right. Very good. Thank you. All right. Here's the reason I'm telling you. You guys, in the Bible's opinion, 
play a huge role in the cause of Jesus Christ. You guys with the gift of hospitality, and you just need to like rev your hospitality engine and just turn it. Maybe you're thinking about that already. Maybe you're not. I just want to bring a highlight to you and say you need to think about that. You need to use that gift in a mighty way because the Bible's telling us. It's pointing you out. It's saying, man, you're it. You're all that, and you need to do it. So I just want to stop and pray for everybody here, those party animals who have the gift of hospitality, just to do it for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for everybody in this room who has that gift. They raise their hand or a friend nearby because they wouldn't raise their hand, pointing them out. God bless that gift. As they, as they seek you about how to use it, God, give them wisdom, give them direction, give them creativity, bless them, and allow that gift to be used in mighty ways to uh, further uh, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And uh, Lord, just speak to all of us here this morning from your word and your name. Amen. Okay, uh, here we go. There are two vital ingredients uh, to this thing, becoming a person of powerful influence. Here's the first one. A person of powerful influence must be a person of conviction. Conviction. You have to have conviction. What is conviction? Conviction is a firmly held belief. It's strong. It's firm. It's clear. It's a, you ever shake, have shaken hands with somebody who, like, they give you that hand? It's like a death grip right on your hand. It, like, almost crushes your hand. It's firm. And they're, like, bearing down. This is conviction. It's firm. It's not weak. It's not like somebody's putting a fish into your hand. It just kind of sits there. You know what I'm saying? Like rigor mortis. Nothing like that. It's very firm. Very clear. Do we have the picture? All right. So it's clear. It's firm. This is conviction. This is what it means. And nothing of powerful influence can be accomplished without living a life of firm conviction. This is who Paul was. He would not be dissuaded. He would not be swayed. They said, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. He's like, I'm going. Why are you going? Because I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And he's a Savior for all people everywhere, Jews and Gentiles alike. I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and life. And I am fully convicted of that, and I'm not backing off. This is what he believed. He believed that the Bible was true, and he stood on it. And he said, I'm not backing down. I am going. You can keep saying stop, but I am not going to stop. I'm marching towards Jerusalem. Very reminiscent of Jesus Christ. Very reminiscent, because as Jesus was making that final march, right, we're almost Easter, two, two Sundays ago, right, Easter, right, Jesus is marching towards Jerusalem, and everybody's like, stop, go back, you're going to die there, is I will not be dissuaded, I'm headed to Jerusalem, and Paul does the exact same thing. Here's the thing about conviction, people with conviction will not be dissuaded, whether other people are watching them, whether they're in the spotlight, right, they won't, they won't back down, or they're all by themselves, right, they will not back down from their convictions when it's firm and it's strong. In order to do something great, to be a person of conviction, very strong conviction. You hold to your beliefs whether you feel like it or you don't feel like it. You hold to your beliefs whether it's convenient or inconvenient. You hold to your beliefs whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable, popular or unpopular. For some people, convictions, a lot of times in the Bible, you see this, it puts your life in danger. That people die over their convictions. Jesus Christ died because of his convictions. The Apostle Paul dies because of his convictions. Martin Luther King Jr. dies because of his convictions. President Lincoln dies because of his convictions. Sometimes our convictions will cost us our jobs. They'll cost us money. They'll cost us popularity. They'll cost us our reputation. They'll, they'll cost us something. When a person has strong convictions, every single person of strong convictions pays a price. 
It's a sacrifice. But we will never, ever, ever do something great in the eyes of God unless we are a person of strong, very strong convictions. Now, let's just say a couple things about convictions. Two things, actually. The first one is this. You have to be convinced to live a life of conviction. You have to be convinced. Paul was convinced. What is he convinced of? He was convinced that Jesus Christ was the way, the truth, and the life, and that the Bible was God's word and it was true. Now, look, I want to stop and say something. Maybe it's your first time here and you're like, whoa, man, I don't believe all that. And this, so I just want you to know I'm making some assumptions today. We have spent a lot of time here at Grace talking about information and saying, you know what, take your time with the information. So I'm making some some presumptions, things that I'm saying, I want you to know, that, and I know that, okay, but this is kind of one of the things that just we wanted to do, I wanted to do today, but we have a ton of messages on our website, just a ton of them, that talk about how we come to that place where we are convinced, all right, so if you'll allow me on this one day just to say, this is it, this is what I'm going to do, and whether you don't allow me or not, I'm going to stand here for the next 20 minutes and do it, so uh, I'd appreciate it if you'd stay, because it's com- uncomfortable if you leave, all right. You have to be convinced to live a life of conviction. So we read in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then the rest of that chapter in Hebrews 11, it gives us all these people, these men and women, who live these lives of full conviction because they were fully convinced of something, right? So we've got Noah. So God says, Noah, go build a boat. Now, you're going to build this humongous boat that's nowhere even near a body of water. You have to be convinced that you're doing the right thing. You, you know what I'm saying? So God says to David, David, I want you to go fight Goliath, this seasoned warrior who's more than twice your size. All right, guys, if we're going to go out and fight somebody, men, if we're going to go out and fight somebody, we've got to be convinced that we have a shot at winning. Because if we don't have a shot at winning, we come up with some other way uh, to get out of that situation. You, you know what I'm saying? So I was, uh, when I was about 14, 15 years old, I was up at Mario's Pizza about 2 o'clock uh, in the morning. My kids aren't in here, so this is good. So I was at 2 o'clock in the morning. I was with a buddy of mine. I was every bit of about five foot two, about 100 pounds. And somebody, another guy there said something to a buddy of mine who was about the same size. And I looked at him, and I knew there would be no problem dealing with that guy. So I said, so I won't tell you what he said to my friend, and I won't tell you what I said back to him. But it caused an altercation. And here's the thing. I was fully convinced I did not have a problem with that guy. But what I did not realize is that guy had a buddy with him, and his buddy was about 6'6", 250 pounds. That was a problem. I was not convinced I could do something about that, so I had to come up with a creative way to get myself out of that situation. You follow me? But when you are convinced, you have to be convinced in order to be convicted. Rahab, Rahab in the city of Jericho, had to be convinced that God, the Israelites were marching into the promised land and God had given them the promised land. She had to be convinced because she brought the spies into her house and she took her life. It was at risk. She had to be convinced, had to be convinced. So you might say, well, John, that's my problem. I'm not convinced. And I want to say two things about this, not being convinced. In my own life, just to share with you, there are some times in my life, everybody, that I need more information and I need more time in order for me to be convinced and to be convicted of something. I need more information. I need more time. And we've talked a lot about that. But I want to tell you something else. There are also times in my life, everybody, where I will not allow myself to be convinced of something Because if I allowed myself to be convinced of that thing, I would have to change. You follow me? I'd have to change, and I know it. And so I say, well, you know, I'm really not sure. You know, like, 
I, I don't really know about this thing in the Bible, what it says about X, Y, or Z. I, I'm, just, I'm a little gray on that, and I'm still trying to, I'm trying to figure that out, so I'm not convinced of it. Well, deep down inside, oh, I know exactly what it's saying. But if I said that out loud or I said it inside of myself, I'd have to do some serious changing. So we have to allow ourselves to be convinced once we've reached that time. Something very interesting happens to Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 12. I put the scripture down here for you. He's got a group of people come to him and they ask a question, and he gives a very strong response to it. Look what he does. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign. All right, very good. We want to see a miraculous sign for you. So Jesus says, he answers them, a wicked an adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it. That is so weird. That doesn't make sense. Why doesn't it make sense? Here's the reason it makes sense. Jesus is knee-deep in miracles, like he's doing miracles all over the place. Why does he go for the juggler on these guys who simply say, can you give us another miracle? We'd like to see another miracle. And he's like, right for their throats. Why would he do that? You know why? Because they had made the decision that no matter what, they were not going to believe. No matter what, they were going to stay unconvinced. This was just a game for them. This is just another smokescreen for them. And what I'm saying to you is, is I do that sometimes in my own life. I say, I'm not totally convinced. When reality is, is I've decided that I'm not going to believe on this one area, and I'm just going to continue to live a life without conviction because I say I'm not convinced. You see something totally different one chapter earlier where John the Baptist, who is in prison, sends his disciples to Jesus and say, you know what? Jesus, John is not convinced that you're the Messiah. He's wavering a little bit, right? He's wavering. Ask Jesus, are you the one or should we expect another? And what is Jesus' response? He says to the disciples, please go back to John the Baptist and tell him all about all the miracles you see me doing. Well, what's up with that? And we have one group of people who says, I'm not going to do a miracle. You're a wicked and adulterous generation. Other, he's, he's like all kind and nice to John the Baptist. Please go tell him about all the miracles. Why? Because John the Baptist was willing to be convinced and the other group was totally unwilling to be convinced. We all have areas that God deals with in our lives and he pushes on us, pushes on us, and we have to say, am I willing to be open and to be convinced? And if we are, that means we have to change. And some of us, like me, sometimes have signs that, you know what, I don't want to be convinced because I know deep down if I am, I would have to change. And what that leads to is a life of mediocrity because it's only the people who live with a life of conviction that do something great. That's true in history, and it's true in Bible history on both sides. We know it. That's just a fact. People of conviction are the people who do something great in this life. Okay? So we have to allow ourselves to be convinced. Here's a second thing about conviction that we need to know. You have to have character to live a life of conviction. You have to have character. Character. It's really important to be a person of character. Here's, here's some sad news if you're a Virginian. Is anybody here like a lifelong Virginian? I am. Anybody else? You know, we have a lot of people from, okay, we got to come. So uh, just this morning I saw an email. The state of Virginia has been given the grade of F, failure, for integrity. This is bad. So for others of you who are from other parts of the country and you're now here in Virginia, you're like, yeah, I knew it. I knew it. there was something wrong with this state. I'm sick and tired of it. Get your act together, okay? You have to have character to live a life of commitment. So I just gave you a whole smattering of stuff here, that qualities of character, honesty, integrity, loyalty, dependability, courage, determination, generosity, forgiveness, self-control, respect for others, and activism, all right? And we could talk a lot about uh, all of those, but let me just highlight a couple things and we'll move on. Abraham Lincoln, what was his nickname? Anybody can... Abraham? Honestly, look at you. That's fantastic. That's great. Wonderful. Known for his character. 
Lincoln said that reputation is the shadow, but character is the tree. He was known for his character. He was known for his convictions all of his life. Where did that start? Where did Honest Abe start? You know, historians think it started about 1835 when in New Salem, Illinois, he ran a general store with a buddy of his, a partner of his, named William Barry. And William Barry wasn't the best businessman. But it became known during that time that Lincoln, Honest Abe, would always do the right thing. William Barry was really a heavy, heavy drinker, and he died early, and he left Lincoln, his partner, with a lot of debt. And Lincoln says, no matter what, I will pay every penny of this off, even though all of, so much of this is his blame. And he does. He pays every penny off. And he gets this nickname, Honest Abe, and it sticks with him for the next 30 years. And what resurfaces when he runs for president of the United States? Honest Abe. Honest Abe. He's known for his convictions. The word character itself is defined as being stable. Stable. Think about that. Steady and stable. So the Bible says we can't be like the waves of the sea, tossed back and forth with every whim. So when somebody who has character, they give their word about something, they make a vow, they make a commitment, they stick with it. They stick, whether it's popular or unpopular, whether, whether, it's, whether it's a convenient thing for them to do, or un, whether it causes them sacrifice, whatever, they're going to stick with it because their character demands that. They, and then one last thing, I just want to bring this out, activism. The word activism means a vigorous advocate for a cause. Vigorous advocate. So when you have conviction and you have character, it like motivates you to move and to do something. All right? So when I'm convinced, I'm convicted, I have character, I get involved. I was channel surfing, uh, I think it was last year sometime, and I came across this little thing. We're going to show you real quick. You're going to see some people who have tremendous conviction, and because of their conviction and their character, these people are involved. So let's, uh, let's run that video clip. Hopefully we'll have sound in a second. The stuff they're saying is awesome, just to let you know. It's incredible. It's really cool. They're talking about putting their life at risk. I'll just narrate the whole thing. So... Uh, some guy like got his legs cut off, I think they said right here, and one ship gets down, and uh, they're putting their life. I don't know. I don't know what that thing is. There's who knows what that thing is. I wondered what is that they're shooting. Anybody? Okay, I didn't quite hear that, but that's good. Okay. Oh, stink bo stink bombs. Well, there's nothing you hate worse than a stink bomb being shot into it. So, all right. Well. Uh, anyway, they put their life at risk. So let's get rid of that because that didn't, it's all right. That happens sometimes. Uh, yeah, shut it down because then nobody's going to pay it. They're going to keep watching this. Uh, so this is whale wars. Here's a group of people who are so convicted about the safety of whales that they're not comfortable. Their character will not allow them to sit on their sofas at home, right? They have got to go out on the high seas and risk their lives. Does anybody know somebody who is so convicted about a cause or a passion that's like that? I remember we used to live next door to somebody who was that way with dogs. And if you've been around a while, you know that I have an issue with dogs because we have one in our home. But this person was like head over heels about dogs and everything. You know, you know people could be dying in the streets, but as long as the dogs are safe, the world is great. All right? This kind of passion. Now, these people have this compassion, this conviction, this character over whales. We must save the whales. The question is, do you feel the same way about the cause of Jesus Christ? 
right? And if you do, it will never allow you just to sit there. I've been in church all my life, but I've never, I've not always, I've not always been active in church all my life where I'm like doing something, serving or something like that. And it's during those times of my inactivity, it's like character would just rise up in me like a barking dog and it would like I had to do something. I had to do it because of conviction, because of character. It's very important. Now, I want to talk to you real quickly about two dangers of conviction, because it is dangerous. Being a person of strong conviction is dangerous. So here's the first thing. It breeds contempt for other people. We must be careful with our strong convictions because it breeds contempt. So everybody, if I'm living my, my convictions, my convictions, and those convictions are very strong, and I know my convictions are right, and you're not living the same way, what does that make you? Wrong. That makes you wrong, right? I'm right. My convictions, they're clear, they're strong, I'm right, you're wrong. So then what happens? I be, I, it, it's very easy for me to begin to look down on other people. It's very easy for me to get judgmental and angry and say ugly things and stuff like that because my way is the right way. And that conviction is so We must have strong conviction, but we must be very, very careful never to become that judgmental person. So we see in the life of Jesus Christ, he's with his disciples and two of his disciples, James and John, they come to him because Jesus had been to a village and the village says, you know, Jesus, we don't want you to be here. Can you move on? And so the disciples, James and John come to Jesus and say, look, Jesus, would you like us to call fire down out of heaven and burn up this entire village, men, women, and children? And they're like, they have no clue that that could be a wrong thing. And he's like, what are you, are you stupid? No, we're not going to do that. Let's go, you know, it can make you be very judgmental. Here's the second danger of it. It breeds bad decisions. Now, you can write bad decisions. You can write hasty decisions. You can write rash decisions, whatever decisions that you wish you like. Oh, my gosh, I wish I could go back and correct that thing because it's so bad. You know how it is. Maybe you've been around somebody. There are very strong convictions. And when a lot of times when issues come up, they're like really quick on their judgments on it. No. That person's bad. That person's good. That's evil. Sick. They're going to hell. You know what I'm saying? Right? Boom, 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 boom. Like, whoa, man, slow down a little bit. Right? There's a guy in the Bible. His name is Jephthah. Jephthah had a tough life, and he became a person of very strong convictions out of his tough life, a great warrior and a great general. He was going into a battle, right? And he had, you know, everybody had turned to him because he's a great leader. And he, with his strong convictions, he knew that God was going to help him to win the battle. And just before they go into battle, he says, God, I make a vow to you right now. Here are all the strong convictions. Bad decision coming. He said, I make a vow that when I get back home, when I walk and I ride onto my property, the first thing that I see, right, my, you know, cows or whatever, that's what he's thinking in his mind. I'm going to sacrifice to you. Just bold, strong. So he's riding back home because he wins the battle. And what's the first thing that he sees? His only daughter. His only daughter. Dumb, very dumb. He says to his daughter, you've broken my heart. You've broken. Who's broken your heart? What are you talking about? He ends up sacrificing his daughter. Very bad. Very bad. So you have to be good. There are dangers with conviction. All right, let me tell you the last thing here. To be a person of powerful influence means you must be a person of compassion. You can't be all conviction. You have to have strong convictions to do something great. It is so clear, everybody. But if you don't marry that together with strong compassion, things are going to get way off the mark. 
wait, just like the sons of thunder, James and John, let's burn the whole village up because it's wrong. You must marry together with strong compassion. Look at all, look at these couple of verses I've given you about Jesus, about God and compassion. It says, the Lord is compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. Be compassionate and be humble. When a person is compassionate, when they're leaning on their compassion, they're slow to anger, not quick, not hasty decisions. They're not full of wrath. They're full of love. We need to be full of God's compassion. These two things tend to fight against each other. And what I'm saying today is, is with God's help, those two things have to be married together in order to do something great for God. And they're open to every single one of us. It's not like we can't be persons of conviction and compassion. We can. We can work hard at it. And we can pray for divine intervention from God to help us to become those people. We need balance. Paul was a person of very strong convictions. We've already seen that. But do you know he's a person of very strong compassion? So as he's making his way to Jerusalem, everybody's saying, don't go, stop, Paul, turn back. This is terrible. You're going to get killed. And he says, no, I'm marching on. There was a group of people in Jerusalem waiting for him. They've been gossiping about him. They've been distorting the truth about him. They've been causing all kinds of problems for him. And when they got to town, when he gets to town, they're going to they're going to stir everybody up in a frenzy because they want to kill him. And you know what Paul is bringing with him? He's bringing with him a gift to them, a financial gift. He had been collecting money at all the Gentile churches. And these people thought that Gentiles that God created. Look, this is true. This is true that some Jewish people in those days believed that the only reason God allowed Gentiles to be born was to fuel the fires of hell. We're going to birth a Gentile so we can keep the fires of hell burning. All right, that's how strong it was. And so you had people in Jerusalem. They so hated Paul because he's preaching that Jesus Christ has come to save everybody. And so Paul knows it, and they're just a huge, this is a major problem. So what's he, he brings a gift out of his compassion because he not only had strong conviction, he had strong compassion. Look what he says about these same Jewish people who hated him so desperately. Romans 9, he says, at the same time, you need to know that I carry with me at all times this huge sorrow and enormous pain deep within me. And I'm never free from it. I'm not exaggerating. Christ and the Holy Spirit are my witnesses. Now he's getting ready to tell us. It's the Israelites. If there was any way I could be cursed, Paul's saying, if, you could, if I could just be cursed by God so that they could be blessed, I'd do it in a minute. They're my family. He said, I'd die for them. So you got a guy here who is just off the charts with conviction, but he's also, also off the charts with compassion. And that's why he does something great for God in this world. Now, let me conclude by saying this. I know you're out there because every now and then you come and you tell me this, but who would ha- be so bold to say, you know what, I actually enjoy hellfire and brimstone preaching. Is anybody so bold to say, you know what, I enjoy that? I know, I know you're there. Nobody in the first service would raise their hand. Is there somebody with strong enough conviction that I like hellfire and brimstone preaching? None. Okay. Nobody raised their hand again. Okay. I understand. I, I know you're there. Your convictions aren't strong enough, but that's okay. All right. <clears throat> uh, Billy Graham. Billy Graham was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. He's still alive today. Now, not many of us in this room were around the 50s. I wasn't around in the 50s, but I have seen the tapes and I've read the sermons. Okay. Very strong, and he would take his fist and he'd pound it into his hand, or he'd pound the pulpit or something like that. And he would say, You or every single one of you are going to stand before the judgment seat of Almighty God, and you're going to have to give an account for your life. And if you don't get your life right right now with Jesus Christ, you are you're, you are going to go straight to hell. Don't you dare leave this tent before you get your life right with Jesus Christ. Billy Graham, everybody, was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. 
1985, Billy Graham was here in town. He was here for something called the National Religious Broadcast. So anybody who's like on radio and TV and the, in, in the Christian world, they have this big convention. I think it happens every year. I'm not sure. But in 1985, it happened here. I'll never forget it because I was there. I don't remember it because Billy Graham was there. Here's the reason I remember it. There was a guy in, in, in the James Bond movie. They called him Jaws. It was when Roger Moore was James Bond. Do you remember that guy? He's like seven feet tall and he had like metal teeth. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And like in one of the James Bond, at the end of it, he got thrown into this pool that had a shark in it. And instead of the shark biting him, he bites and kills the shark. That is just awesome, right? So that guy, that guy, I don't know his real name. All I know is I call him Jaws. He was at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention here in Washington, D.C. I saw him. And you know what he was doing at that time? He had stopped acting. He now had a ministry to children. Is that awesome or what? The shark biter is out ministering. Did you, did you see him with his ministry to the children? Did you participate or something? Okay, all right, whatever. I'm joking with you. Okay, all right, that's good. All right, so he's, so I don't, anyway, let's get back on subject. Billy Graham, they asked Billy Graham at the convention, they said, how do you want to be remembered? He said, here's how I want to remember. He never lost his integrity. Conviction. He never lost his integrity. Conviction. I have conviction. I'm a person of character. I stuck true to my word. I'm a person of conviction. That's how I want to be remembered. Now, Billy Graham couldn't have known this. But in 1985, we were about two years from a complete meltdown in the Christian broadcasting world. Total meltdown. Some of you remember it. Jimmy Swaggart, on air, sending everybody to hell, living a completely double life, deceiving people, involved in all kinds of stuff, and just sending people to hell like he was righteous and holy, and he wasn't righteous and holy. He was cheating on his wife like crazy, right? Oral Roberts who says, I'm locking myself up in the tower until my followers send me $3 million, something like $3 million. Just total lunacy was going on, right? But the person who got the party kicked off and started was Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, right? Do you remember them? Does anybody remember the PTL club? Okay, they got the party. Because they would sit on golden thrones and people would just worship them. And he said, you know, send money. We're going to do a great work for God. Send money. And they talked a lot about money. And what he was doing was robbing people of millions and millions of dollars. He was, he was caught. He had an affair. He was caught. It triggered all kinds of problems. Got sentenced to 45 years in prison. Before he went to court on this whole thing, he had an idea. I'm going to turn this ministry over to Jerry Falwell. Here's how living in sin totally blows your mind, right? You're just, you, can't, you, can't, you, you become stupid. Who would think, he, Jerry Falwell couldn't stand Jim Baker. He's going to turn it over to him and think somehow he's going to protect Jim Baker and help him to continue to get a salary. It's ridiculous. He turns it over to Jerry Falwell, and Jerry Falwell says, after he gets his hands on it, he says, Jim Baker is a liar, an embezzler, and a sexual deviant. Jerry Falwell said this about Jim Baker. He said, he is the greatest scab and cancer on Christianity in 2,000 years. He gets sentenced to 45 years in prison. He's somewhere in the middle of his phase of being in prison. He's in cleaning the bathrooms. I think it was the day after his wife, Tammy Faye Baker, gave him like divorce papers or something like that. He's completely broken. Uh, He's just totally humiliated. It's just sick. He's in there. He's cleaning the toilets. He's got his overalls on in prison. And uh, he says says that like even his shoes, like they didn't have, his toes were poking out and everything. He was a mess, all right? That's what I'm trying to describe. He's a mess. And the guard comes in while he's in this just mess condition and says to him, you have a, you have a visitor. And Baker says, 
um, I don't want to see anybody. Thank you. I, I just, and the guard says, I really think you should come. And he says, look, I don't want to, okay? I, I don't want to see anybody. And the guard kind of insists. He says, I really think you, should, you, you need to come. And he, Baker says, okay, I'm coming. I'm not changing. I'm just going to, just like this. And all the filth from the bathroom, I'm just coming just like this. I look terrible. I'm not going to, just going to go in. He walks in the room. And here, Jim Baker, the most despised minister in the United States of America, is staring at the most admired minister in America, Billy Graham. What would Billy Graham do to the scab and cancer of Christianity? What would he do? You know what Billy Graham did? Arms straight out, makes a beeline straight to Baker, wraps his arms around him. Baker says he cried like a baby forever. And he says to Jim Baker, I want you to know I love you. Everybody, Billy Graham was a person of tremendous conviction and tremendous compassion, and that is what makes him great. We can be a church of people of strong conviction and strong compassion. We can be people of powerful influence, and you'll never get it by conviction alone or compassion alone. We'll get it when we're people of strong conviction and strong compassion, and we can do something great for God, for the cause of Jesus Christ. These are the kind of things that remember. When I was thinking about this past week, I was thinking, I could just see in my mind this church filled with people of strong conviction and strong compassion. I'm going to ask every day Sunday to, to come back on up. They're going to play one last song for us. Um, and I want us just to, as they sing, I really want us to think about, God, what do you want me to do with this message of conviction and compassion? How do you want me to respond? You know, I said earlier, uh, we can't work towards salvation. We can't do it. But we can work towards being people of conviction and compassion. But it's somewhere along the line. I know that I will never make it to where God wants me to be unless I have divine intervention. So I want to encourage you to pray about that. I want to encourage you. This might be a great Sunday to visit the prayer team because we need divine intervention in order to fulfill that call to be people of conviction and compassion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, as we just take these next few moments, in worship, speak to us. Help us to slow down and to think for a second, God, and to hear your voice and to be willing to be moved by you, to do something great for you on this earth. In Christ's name, amen.